There's not a lot of encouraging news when you take a close look at the plight of the polar bear and its home in the Arctic. We're going to lose the Arctic ice cap eventually, and that will be a disaster not only for the bears and not only for the whales and not only for the seals, but will be a disaster for all of us everywhere because we're losing an ecosystem. I'm Rick Steves. Naturalist Richard Ellis has been probing the changing world of the polar bear, and he joins us today on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us where things stand for both the wildlife and for the native people of the Arctic. He warns that global warming has already accelerated the obliteration of the polar ice cap and explains what that'll mean for the entire northern hemisphere in just a few more years. And what's happening to the polar bear is going to affect all of us. Sure, when we travel, it takes a toll on our environment. But when we travel to learn, we can be part of the solution. And that's our aim in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. There may be time to reverse the path global warming's taking from the top down on our planet, as today's guest Richard Ellis explains on Travel with Rick Steves. He's here to tell us why we've got to take what's happening in the Arctic seriously. And later in the hour, we'll take your calls to hear about the encounters you've enjoyed in your travels. I'm Rick Steves. Thanks for coming along today. Seems like one of the most lovable creatures on the planet is the polar bear. Everybody seems to love polar bears, and uh, people who care about the environment are realizing that the polar bear's environment is vanishing. And I'm joined today by Richard Ellis, who's written a book called On Thin Ice, The Changing World of the Polar Bear, in order to see what's going on with the environment and what does that mean to polar bears. Richard Ellis has written uh, many books on marine biology. He's a marine conservationist. Richard joins us today to talk about his latest book, On Thin Ice, The Changing World of the Polar Bear. Richard, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. You you have a perplexing beginning of your book talking about this irony. Uh, people go to Svalbard, that Norwegian island way up in the Arctic. It's polar bear tourism, and everybody goes there to love those polar bears, and that island itself exports 4 million tons of coal a year to Europe. And it's just not working together very well, is it? Well, the polar bear is a series of contradictions. A lot of things about polar bears seem to refute other things about polar bears. Yes, it's true that in Svalbard, the major industry is coal mining, and coal burning, everybody knows, is one of the major causes of uh, carbon dioxide emissions in the air. So global warming is, to a very great extent, caused by burning coal. So there in Svalbard, they are mining coal, and at the same time, people are looking at polar bears walking around. So on the one hand, you have uh, the polar bear, this lovable creature of the Arctic. On the other hand, right next to it, you have an image of coal that is going to affect not only polar bears, but the rest of the world. So they're loving their polar bears and killing them at the same time. Yes, yes. The coal is killing them. Then right. in I mean, unknowingly, I guess, or, yeah, or, or just yeah. they, can, they can be in denial or blissfully ignorant about yeah, it. Yeah, but it's not only Svalbard, remember, that coal but, burning throughout the world. But that's is, a microcosm yeah. there to help us see what we're doing as a planet. Well, that's why I did this book. I did this book using the polar bear as an icon for the problems of global warming. In other words, the book is about the polar bear, and it contains a lot of information about the life and times of polar bears. But the larger picture is what's happening to the polar bear, and what's happening to the polar bear is going to affect all of us. Now, you could say different species come and different species go, and some of them go extinct and life goes on. But a lot of people who really know a lot about the environment see the polar bear as kind of the canary in the mine shaft. Is, is that a, a fair analogy? Well, it's a fair analogy, except the polar bear makes a pretty <laughs> foolish-looking canary. A 10-foot-tall white bear doesn't look much like a canary. But as everybody knows, the canary was brought into the coal mine because it was more sensitive to noxious gases. And if the canary died, which is what they were looking for, they quickly got out of the mine. What is happening is this big snow-white furry canary is beginning to die off because it's losing the area on which it lives. Hmm. It's not being poisoned so much by noxious gases, but what is happening is the gases are destroying the atmosphere. As the atmosphere is destroyed, polar bears and other creatures are affected. Now, polar bears are unusual because they're only in the north, right? right. And, they, and they have to have a diet of basically seals. Yeah. 
Polar bears are what are called obligate carnivores, which mean they eat only meat. And this shouldn't surprise anybody they eat only meat because where they live, there is only meat. There are no trees. There are no branches. There's no grass except in Churchill, and we'll talk about that. But there's no, nothing else for polar bears to eat. So they have evolved into carnivores that live specifically on seals, and not only on seals but on seal fat mm. because polar bears build up a subcutaneous layer of fat themselves which insulates them against the cold weather and the cold water. And when they're denning up, when the females are denning up, they need to support themselves on their accumulated fat. This is what polar bears do. They live only in the Arctic. However many Coke commercials you've seen about polar bears and penguins sharing a Coke are preposterous. And the Coca-Cola company knows that. There are no penguins and polar bears in the same hemisphere. Now, why don't the polar bears just get with it, move a little farther south and eat berries and roots like other bears? Uh, because they're polar bears, <laughs> because they have evolved into being polar bears over hundreds of thousands of years. Their teeth are designed to eat fat. Their digestive systems are designed to eat fat. Mm. Everything they do involves eating seals. You cannot th – why don't you just eat insects? I mean, the fact <laughs> is that you're not well designed to do that. And their metabolism is such that they require fat. If they could eat only roots and berries, they would starve to death very quickly. Okay. So the idea that you can simply move them somewhere and have it's not gonna work. polar bears living next to grizzly bears and both of them digging up roots right. and berries isn't going to work. So they're going to swim and swim and look for seals and look for some ice to climb out on until they get too tired. And They will swim and swim. Uh, this is an exaggerated concept but yet a valid one because polar bears, are, first of all, are excellent swimmers. They can swim 60 miles from the nearest land. They're not very fast, mm -hmm. which has a lot to do with what happens if they find themselves in the water, and that is they can't catch seals in the water. Seals are better swimmers than polar bears. So okay. you can't jump in the water and grab a passing seal, but rather you have to do what you normally do, come out on the ice and catch one. Now, I read a fascinating uh, entry in your book where the polar bear kind of camps out in front of a seal's breathing hole in the ice. That's tell what they do. Tell us about that. Polar bears will wait by a breathing hole. The seals that they feed on are called ringed seals because they have a pattern of small circles on their body. The polar bear will wait for a seal to come out and breathe, and it can wait for days doing this. And we're not talking 10 minutes of waiting. We're talking serious waiting time here. They can wait for days to do this, and when the seal finally sticks its head up, the polar bear swipes it with this powerful paw, which is armed with great big claws, and yanks the seal out of the water and feeds on it. This is the way they hunt. They also have such a good sense of smell that they can smell a seal den under the ice through two feet of ice. And they pound that and pound that until they can break into it. The polar bear pulls that seal out, and that seal's a pretty heavy creature itself. Polar seal. bears are enormously powerful animals. They are able to take down a male polar bear, which can be weighed at probably 1,500, 1,800 pounds. They're much bigger than females. A male polar bear can take down a full-grown walrus. A full-grown walrus can weigh 4,000 pounds and have skin that's two or three inches thick. Bears are able to knock them off. Now, did you call in your book the polar bear the largest hunting mammal on yeah. the planet or something like that? It's the largest land predator on land the planet. Predator. The largest predator on the planet by several orders of magnitude is the sperm whale, which right. can weigh 60 tons. But a land predator. A land predator. They're bigger than brown bears. They're taller than brown bears. Mm. And the biggest ones are heavier than brown bears. And your best guess right now, how many live on this planet, polar bears? 22,000, 22, give or take. 000. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're considering the plight of the polar bear, which is, as we've discussed, the canary in the mine shaft, if you're wondering what's going on with climate change. I'm joined by Richard Ellis, who's written many books on marine uh, biology. He wrote a book on the plight of the tuna called Tuna, a Love Story. He's written a book called The Empty Ocean, and he's written a book called No Turning Back, talking about the history of extinction in general. Richard, your newest book on polar bears, when you start looking at the marine world, must be a, a natural sort of uh, next step for you then. It is, in a manner of speaking, most of the animals I've written about, whales, sharks, squid, all live permanently in the ocean. Polar bears don't. They live permanently on the okay. ocean, if you will. But that would still be marine biology. Oh, they, well, they are marine mammals. They're officially right. classified as marine mammals, even if they don't spend their entire lives in the water. Now, one thing different, I think, about polar bear is the romantic historic image of them. I mean, in your book, you've got these fascinating European etchings from, I think, the 19th century or earlier, 18th century. 16th century. 16th century, showing 
It seemed to me it was always violence. It was man against the beast of the Arctic, you know. Well, this is the story that has come down over the ages about polar bears, is that they're utterly dangerous animals, and they're going to attack you in your tent or chase your dog sled or climb aboard your ship and eat everybody. But in point of fact, I don't think polar bears are all that dangerous. Now, that is not to say that the next time I run into a wild polar bear, I'm going to run up to it and scratch it behind the ears. But polar bears are much more curious than dangerous. And many of the, quote, attacks that were perceived were not attacks at all, but they were rather a polar bear entering a camp, chasing a dog sled, approaching a ship. The people who saw a thousand-pound white bear approaching them were hardly about to wait and see if it wanted to have a snack or if it wanted to bite their head off, so they shot it. Hmm. And then when they came back to civilization, they managed to tell the story about how they were attacked by a bear because it came to their camp. And we knew, they said, that the next thing it was going to do was eat all the sled dogs and then eat us. Well, they didn't really do that. There's a series of pictures in this book that show a polar bear playing with a sled dog. A wild bear wandered into camp. There were chained up sled dogs there. And you can see in this book pictures of the bear. I remember that picture, yeah. Rolling over, playing with the dogs. They were very, very chummy at that point. And polar bears, while powerful, dangerous predators, are not man-eaters. But if you uh, have a miscommunication and he turns on you, you'd have a tough time outrunning him. You probably couldn't because they can run twice as fast as humans can, and they're much better adapted to run in the snow and on the ice, for that matter. They have hair on the soles of their feet, which enable them to grip slippery ice when they're walking on the ice. I was fascinated by even the circus programs of the Ringling Brothers Circus uh, a century ago had as their cover animal, their poster child, polar bears. Well, that was, that's the same rationale, the same thing that they were perceived to be dangerous. So like exotic lions. from the north. Yeah, but lions and tigers, you yeah. see with lion and tiger trainers and they're cracking a whip and waving a chair at them because we know that lions and tigers are dangerous animals. Bears, on the other hand, are bigger. They kind of look like in, in the circus anyway, they look like people in polar bear suits because they don't have the kind of lithe... Maybe that's a blessing for a lion tamer if he gets the gig to try to tame the polar bear. I think the people did the same things, but it didn't work out because polar bears look too cuddly and they look too fuzzy and however dangerous you think they are, making them stand up on their hind legs and drink from a bottle kind of diffuse the image of a dangerous animal, so they drop polar bears from circus acts. What is your take as a person who cares about polar bears on having polar bears in zoos? I have mixed feelings about any animals in captivity. It is sort of uncomfortable for the animal if we're able to think along those terms. But on the other hand, if you can't get to where this animal is, it probably helps your understanding of what the animal is all about if you see a living one. Mm. Nowadays, we have videos and films and cameramen everywhere. But so you could make a case that having a polar bear taken care of as well as he could be in captivity can actually be a positive thing because it builds empathy for them. Yeah, it, it enables you to see, for example, how a polar bear moves. But the circus what, was just a freak show. The, always have been. Animals in circuses were always freak shows. They used to have menageries that accompanied circuses where they just had strange animals in cages, weird yeah. kangaroos and things that nobody knew what they were. They just kept them in cages till they died. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Richard Ellis, and Richard has dedicated a lot of energy and time to studying the plight of the polar bear, and he's written a new book called On Thin Ice, The Changing World of the Polar Bear. Today's guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Richard Ellis, and his latest book is called On Thin Ice, The Changing World of the Polar Bear. 
We'll also hear our listeners' travel reports later in the hour at 877-333-RICK. And you can continue our discussion in the radio message board at ricksteves.com. You know, we, we know that polar bear is threatened by climate change today, but that wasn't always the case. They were almost um, driven to extinction just for taxidermy, weren't they? I mean, in the old days, it was hunting polar bears. Yeah, but that never threatened the polar bears because a lot of them live in areas that people simply can't get to. Okay. For example, northern Greenland, which contains nowadays the largest national park in the world, millions of acres, hmm. have no people. Just so, so people polar bears. directly don't threaten polar bears with their guns. They used to shoot them. There was right. a lot of shooting of polar bears that went on, a lot of shooting for trophies. Uh, the coats aren't very soft, so they're not very cuddly. They don't make well, very no good value outer garments. Fur. You can eat them, but only if you're starving. And if you can't eat polar bear liver at all, because it'll kill you, it's poisonous. So there wasn't much of a threat to the bears by hunters. Only the Inuit, only the Eskimos would mm. hunt polar bears as part of their way of life. And it partially because of Eskimo hunting that the stories about man-eating polar bears came down. In order to spear a polar bear, you have to be four feet away from it. And if you're four feet away from a bear mm. and sticking a spear into it, it's not going to be very happy about that. And they're big. And they're very big <laughs> and very big strong. As five Eskimos, right? Yeah, unlikely like yeah. to take your head off. Well. And so the Eskimos came back with stories about how Uncle so-and-so was out on the ice and was eaten by a bear, but they forgot to mention that he already stabbed it before he was eaten. Now, I would imagine the polar bear is a big part of the, the lore, the folklore of the various indigenous groups that, that share that habitat. Because there are a limited number of animals. There are a limited number of mm -hmm. human beings, in fact. There are polar bears, narwhals, belugas, bowhead whales, arctic foxes, a certain amount of birds, and then... Seals. And seals and walruses. And no penguins. No penguins. That's what I learned. But there are people who live there, and the people depend on all these animals okay. for sustenance. Whether it's polar bears, walruses, people eat walruses, people eat seals, people eat reindeer, people eat whale meat, people eat a lot of this stuff. And this is what they depend on. The web of life in the Arctic is dominated by two apex predators. One is human beings and the other is the polar bear. And if you threaten the polar bear, what happens is you upset the whole balance in the Arctic. Of course, what's happening with the disappearing ice is we're upsetting mm. the whole ecological balance of the Arctic, and we're going to lose the Arctic ice cap eventually, and that will be a disaster not only for the bears and not only for the whales and not only for the seals, but will be a disaster for all of us everywhere because we're losing an ecosystem. It's as if you woke up tomorrow morning and somebody announced that Australia was gone. This will change the weather pattern of the Southern Ocean if Australia is gone, which it won't be. But when the ice cap goes, it will change the weather pattern of the northern hemisphere, and the ice cap is going. Now, physically, there's, there's still people that debate whether this is just a fluke or a, sort of a pendulum swinging or something like this. You've spent time up there. You know intimately this environment. Physically, what's happening to the ice cap now? It doesn't matter whether you've spent time up there, although I have been at the North Pole when it was solid ice, and I've been at the North Pole when it was open water. So I've seen the results of this global warming. But you cannot really dispute, emails or no emails, you cannot dispute mm -hmm. that the ice pack is shrinking. And as the ice pack shrinks, more sunlight hits the water. As more sunlight hits the water, the water gets warmer. As the water gets warmer, the ice melts. As the ice melts, there's more area of open water for the sun to hit, so it gets warmer. You can't argue with this. This is as much of a fact as the sun rising in the east. You could spend your life arguing that it doesn't rise in the east, but in fact it does. One of the most disturbing things about that, and I'm no scientist or biologist, but I can get my mind around this, white stuff reflects light. Mm -hmm. The sun is shining on this world and we're warming up. If you have 20% of the world covered in white stuff, it reflects a lot back. If that 20% goes away, the heat gets absorbed by the planet and the snowballing effect, which is a kind of a weird pun, uh, <laughs> is that the less snow there is up there to reflect the sun, the faster the problem And the warmer the land gets, because as you say, the ice is called the albedo, the whiteness of the earth. There are parts of it that are white. The Antarctic is largely white too. Um, and this reflects sunlight back. If it melts, if it isn't there, the sunlight warms that area. That is what we call global warming. And you could reach a tipping point where it would accelerate, I would think, because You've there's You've reached no way a point probably yeah. by now where it's accelerating. Huh. We're not going to see 
the ice cap return to its former glory. No matter what they do in Copenhagen, no matter what they do, if, if everybody stopped driving and everybody in China stopped spewing noxious gases into the air, the polar ice cap would still melt. So we've got an interesting problem on our hand, and the aggressiveness we're dealing with it by my take is, oh, by the year 2030, we'll cut our emissions by 20% and hope it doesn't hurt our economy. Well, if, if our economy is our major concern, and it certainly is for many, many people, and if the polar bear is a minor concern, and it is for many, many people, there are obviously many of those people who are able to say, okay, no more polar bears, so what? So there aren't any more polar bears. But they don't understand the canary in the mine shaft aspect, and no more polar bears means a rising sea level, and it means... uh, The the polar bear's disappearance doesn't mean rising sea level, but the fact that the sea level is rising threatens the polar bears and threatens us. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Richard Ellis, and Richard has written a book about the plight of the polar bear. It's called On Thin Ice, The Changing World of the Polar Bear. Kathy's on the phone in Oakdale, New York. Kathy, thanks for your call. Hi, how are you? Good. Now, I understand you've seen polar bears yourself as a traveler. Yes, I just got back on an awesome trip to see these guys. Where did you go? I went to Churchill. We flew up to Winnipeg, and then you fly up to Churchill, and I elected to do the type of trip where you stay out on the tundra to maximize viewing possibilities and get as up close and personal without getting up close and personal. (laughs) So now, where is Churchill exactly? Um, Churchill is right on the edge of the Hudson Bay um, Ah. in northern Manitoba. Now, do you feel like somebody who cares about polar bears can go up there and watch them and still be sensitive to their, their existence? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, I've always, I've known about the global warming and, you know, you hear about it. And one of the decisions I made to go up, I, I go someplace exotic every year, was I felt like, you know, I should go up here now before there aren't any, before we kill them all off. And mm-hmm. I'm glad that I did go because I did get a chance to see them. But, you know, there was so much information that was given to us up there, and I was just listening as I was waiting on the phone, listening to um, Rick, the author. Um, and it happens that I'm a veterinarian, and some of the things he was saying I absolutely identified with. And, you know, as we change their environment, when you have an animal that has such a restricted diet, um, you cause problems, mm-hmm. you know, which can be health problems right down to extinction. Now, were you inspired after your visit there to be more involved in... in... Uh, well, absolutely. I, <laughs> and I've gotten some other things from National Wildlife, you know, sign this and mail back, and I've done that. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I want to get more involved because I feel like just sitting back and just donating money is really not enough. Well, it's time to act. Let me just check in with Richard here. Richard, Kathy went to Churchill on Hudson's Bay to see polar bears. Where can you go to see polar bears? Or If somebody wants to see polar bears, what's your advice? Churchill on Hudson Bay. That's it? Pretty much. Do they, Pretty are much. they like in semi-captivity there? Or? No, no, no. Not they're, at they're, all. they're not at all in captivity. They're free-ranging. They're out in the open. Churchill is a place on the western shore of Hudson Bay. It was a fur trading town originally. And it's a town close to the area where the polar bears amass every fall before Mm. Hudson Bay freezes. And when Hudson Bay freezes, all these bears, the ones that Kathy saw, I've been to Churchill several times, the ones that I saw, they leave the area in which they're kind of standing around. They're not doing very much. Sometimes they wrestle with each other, but by and large, they don't do anything. They're waiting for the ice to freeze. Then they're gone. By November, December, these bears are gone. You have to go there in October, November, December to see the bears. So that's the season. And if, if you go at any other time, there are no bears. And Churchill okay. is not a place you'd want to go to if there are no polar bears to yeah, see there. But they wait for the ice. When the ice gets strong enough to support their weight, they go wander off on the ice, and they don't come back for the next eight months. This is the only place in the world where this happens. There are places you can see polar bears, but you need a helicopter, you need a dog sled, and then you're not guaranteed of seeing bears. Going to Churchill, guaranteed to see polar bears. If you go in October, November, December. Kathy, tell us more about the actual touristic experience of going to Churchill. What was the town like? Uh, Was it all about polar bears, or did they have um, indigenous uh, exhibits? Yeah, they're proud of their polar bears, even though sometimes the polar bears can be a bit of a nuisance. 
um, because the polar bears are hungry. I mean, they it's like Rick said. I mean, they're starving from when they come on. I believe they told us it was around July. They're nice and fat at that point. Mm. And then from July to whenever the, the bay freezes up enough, you know, if it's an early freeze, late October or into November or even maybe December, you know, they're not eating. Now, we did see them on the ice, and I don't know all the specific details, but I know they told us there's these fish called stickleback that freeze. Um, and then when the, the water defrosts, they come alive again, so to speak. And we saw bears digging on the ice in some shallower waters. And I got a great close-up of one. You can even see his canine as he's pressing his nose up against there because he's hungry. They're wow. hungry. But it was an awesome overall experience. Um, I mean, we saw them every day. They come right up to the Tundra Lodge, as it's called, which looks like a combination between a train, a bus, and a mobile home. Um, <laughs> but they're much bigger than that. That's kind of my um, image of uh, tourism in the Northwest Territories. Or what, what province is that, actually? Manitoba. Manitoba. Hey, Kathy, we've got to run, but I want to thank you for your call. Okay. Good luck on spreading the word about the importance of being aware of what's going on in the habitat of the polar bear. Okay. Thank you so very much. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Richard Ellis, who's written a book called On Thin Ice, The Changing World of the Polar Bear. Richard, it seems like things are connected. we got polar bears need seals. What do seals need? How are they doing? Seals aren't doing so well. Seals need fish. Fish need smaller animals to eat, whether it's algae or phytoplankton or zooplankton. Those animals feed on bacteria, and when you reach the bottom of the food chain, when you reach the bacteria, you suddenly notice that these bacteria are contaminated. They're contaminated by toxins that come from industry. The bacteria are contaminated. Since they are contaminated with DDT and PCBs and organochlorines, the animals that eat them, the algae that eat them, that feed on them. Well, the Eskimos are at the top of the food chain. No, the polar bears are at the top of the food chain. And the killer whales are on the top of the food chain. And in these food chains, if you follow it from bacteria, through crustaceans, through small fishes, through larger fishes, through belugas, narwhals, killer whales, polar bears, when you get to the top, you find the most heavily contaminated animals on Earth. And the human beings in the Arctic are the most heavily contaminated people on Earth because they don't have the opportunity to eat salads and they don't have the opportunity to go to McDonald's. They eat the seals and the fish and the walruses that are contaminated. The poisons build up in their systems. So this is another canary in a different coal mine. This is the sense that everything is connected and it is a living example of John Donne's Do not ask for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Because as we poison bacteria, we're poisoning ourselves. Way up there where you could take a kayak ride and feel like you're in the most pristine wonderland. As long as you don't breathe, you're okay. Way up there where the population is almost zero, you still, if you analyze the creatures that live in that habitat, you find that they are the most polluted on earth. Absolutely. You are just one pile of happiness today. I've always been a pile of <laughs> happiness, but the, but the realization, which is rare among human beings, whether Eskimos or city dwellers, they understand the interconnectedness, this interconnectedness of life. This interconnectedness is vital for people Because to they this. know that they depend on seals. We don't depend on cows or chickens. It's nice to be able to eat them, but if there were no more veal calves tomorrow, the world wouldn't come to an end, or lobsters or whatever we like to eat. But the Eskimos don't have that option. They don't say, well, we'll find something else to eat. If they live on seals or caribou or walrus meat, and if it's poisoned, they have to eat these poisons. So they know, they feel intrinsically the sense that all life is connected. Now, is there a battle between industrial and corporate interests in the Arctic and the environment? What kind of a tension is there in that regard? The tension is that industrial and corporate interests would like very much to be drilling in the Arctic for oil and natural gas. All this drilling and all this prospecting for oil and natural gas upsets the environment. They set off explosions. They kill the animals. They poison the air. We are doing this in the interests of industry and sacrificing the wildlife. There are those, uh, Sarah Palin among them, 
who said she doesn't care. There are more polar bears anyway, so who cares about them? She said this while she was governor of Alaska, which didn't mm-hmm. last very long, but while she was governor of Alaska. Um, and I quoted her in this book. I didn't even know who she was. She was just the governor of Alaska, who I saw, by the way, as a spinsterish woman with rimless glasses and no lips in my mind. That wasn't quite the proper image of Sarah Palin. But the fact is that the people who are in favor of industrial development of the Arctic are at the same time condemning the human beings and the animals of the Arctic to death. You talked in your book about a law that was trying to get across to preserve a a region up there, and then it was blocked by some corporate interest. It was blocked by oil and gas interest. It was the Endangered Species Act. Endangered Species. They wanted to declare the bear, the polar bear, an endangered species. And what George W. Bush said was we cannot use the Endangered Species Act to legislate against global warming. The idea was if we get the bear declared an endangered species, you can't go drilling up its habitat. But they said, yes, you can. Too expensive to declare the polar bear in the short term. Too expensive in terms of losing oil and gas revenue, yes. In the short term, right. But uh, again, what you're saying is canary in the mine shaft. This is something that people who, who care about sustainability, care about the environment beyond the Arctic, should be paying attention to. And they're not. And they're not because we are at a point in the history of this country where oil and gas takes precedence over wildlife. Okay. There's rumblings that a lot of this liberal concern about global warming is just hysteria and it's people are being duped. And there's a lot of people that are dedicating their life to raising awareness to this. There's a lot of struggles legislatively and so on. Your book tells a story that seems to be kind of gloomy. Leave us with something positive. What can we do? Why, why should we care if it's hopeless? Well, because it isn't really hopeless, first of all. It, it is hopeful in that even if we lose the polar, we've lost animals before. It's not a unique experience in the human experience on Earth. We've lost passenger pigeons. We've lost dodos. We've lost a lot of things that we shouldn't have lost because people killed them all. The hopeful thing about what's happening now is even if we do lose the wild polar bear, we're not going to lose them in zoos. There will always be polar bears. But even if we lose the wild polar bear, the encouraging lesson from that is pay attention. If the polar bear goes and we all feel terrible that this wonderful creature is gone, maybe, just maybe, it will remind us in the future not to be so careless with our natural resources. So there's hope in the destruction of the polar bear. The hope is that we can learn from this. Richard Ellis, author of On Thin Ice, The Changing World of the Polar Bear. You're right. We can learn from our mistakes and realize that we've got to be smarter because of it. Well, I think that is the lesson that we could take from the polar bear, that as human beings, as creatures who can learn from the past, I suspect polar bears can't, whales can't, but as people who can learn from the past, if we actually lose something that we love, perhaps we can learn something useful from that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Let's change gears now on Travel with Rick Steves and check in with some of our traveling listeners. We can learn from each other's experiences as we step out beyond our own neighborhoods to see what other places can teach us. Tell us about some of your most vivid travel encounters. We're at 877-333-7425, and our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. And Lloyd's on the phone in Tallahassee, Florida. Lloyd, thanks for your call. Well, thanks uh, for having us on your show, Rick. Yeah, what, uh, what travel thoughts are coming to your mind? Well, my wife and I, a few years ago with uh, some friends, were in Salzburg, Austria. And we had traveled all night on a uh, couchette going from Belgium, making our way to Salzburg. And we wanted to do a Sound of Music tour. And we had arranged for us to be picked up at a pension and we're a bit hungry and well we got a picnic lunch and we're sitting on the uh, front steps of the uh, pension or hotel a small place in uh, Salzburg and the owner came out and he looks at us and says this is not good and I'm looking at my sandwich and I look at him I said yes this is good 
we just go back to eating and we're waiting for the uh, bus to pick us up. And he's going, no, no, this is not good. And I'm going, yes, it is good. <laughs> and he goes, no, this is not good for here. Why are you doing this? And, and he said, well, we're waiting for the bus to pick us up. And he goes, come inside. You must come inside. This is not good for here. Oh, you mean so it, he wasn't upset that there was touristic riffraff having a picnic on his steps. He thought you should go inside and, and eat with a little more elegance. People around might think we were gypsies just camped out on okay. the doorstep. Yeah, because that could have been taken two ways. A lot of times a traveler will sit down innocently on somebody's threshold or doorstep and, and munch a sandwich, and somebody will come along and in what seems like quite a rude response say, you know, you can't eat here, and, and they don't have any patience for them. And it's understandable because day in and day out, tourists are sitting there having their sandwich and drinking their pop, you know. But this man was actually wanting you to get comfortable and come inside and, and enjoy your, your little snack a little more comfortably. I think so. Uh, <laughs> over the years, it has provided a lot of humor. Uh, we were traveling with another couple, friends of ours from Tallahassee, that we had talked into joining us on this trip. Right. And now we always, especially when we're in a, a, a social gathering will look at each other and say, this is not good or this is good. This is not good. Well, hey, when you uh, were in Salzburg, you took the Sound of Music tour. Was that good? It was excellent. We uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, it's actually our second time in Salzburg. We've experienced both the uh, the small private van tour and the large uh, commercial tour bus type. Good, because I was going to ask you if you took the minibus or the big bus, because they have a different personality. How would you uh, compare the two? I would say that the minibus, the personal tour, was uh, much more fun. In fact, it was hilarious. Um, my wife and I were the only married couple on the uh, mini tour, and our driver kept hitting on uh, several girls from Australia. Was the staff uh, Austrian, or were they Aussies or Brits or Americans? Uh, the driver, the uh, only one that we really had contact with, was a uh, Austrian young man. So he was a driver guide. Yes, the Austrian young man was a driver guide, and those guys he, are good. They're like comedians. They really know the history of the sound of music. Oh, it was great. In fact, uh, at that time, the uh, sixteen seventeen uh, gazebo from the movie was open. Ah. And my wife and I got a uh, picture in the doorway as we had a uh, little kiss. Oh, I love it. The I am 16 going on 17 gazebo. Yes. Now, yes. now on that tour, Lloyd, you go to the I am 16 going on 17 gazebo. You see the um, the church where the wedding was. Yes, we went to Monze for the church. Uh, the minibus pointed out the trees that the children were swinging from. That's right. On our way to Monze. And he made the joke about how the trees had grown in so much in 20 years. When you go to the, the Von Trapp family mansion, it was actually filmed in two different houses, I believe. The one facade for the exterior and then another one for the interior. Do you remember the details on that? We were not allowed to uh, go into either of those houses. It was pointed out. Yeah. Now, this is actually like the better part of a day trip, and you get a little bit of a Salzburg tour, and then it's a very easy way to get out into the countryside in the Salzkammergut, beautiful district of the foothills oh, of the Alps there. absolutely gorgeous. Uh, my wife and I are wanting to go back and just spend time in the uh, Salzkammergut. We love the area. So you may be singing Doe a Deer with a bunch of tourists and a minibus running around the outskirts of Salzburg, and that's fun, but you also get an honest-to-goodness quick tour of the city and uh, a trip out into the countryside, which I think is it really complements the whole visit to Salzburg. Oh, it does. It yeah. does. In fact, I played my own trick with the uh, people in the mini-tour as we went into the cemetery. Oh, that's right. You go into the cemetery where the little girl um, sneezed. Where the family is hidden uh, behind the, the yeah. uh, fenced-off. Right. And uh, all of a sudden, I just, in an excited voice, pointed to one of the, uh, I guess you would call it a crypt. And I'm excitedly saying, that's the one from the movie. That's the one from the movie. And everyone's rushing around taking pictures. And then someone goes, well, how do you know? And I said, hey, it looked like the one. Yeah. So it was my own little trick. But. And, oh, so they all bought your enthusiasm, even though it could have been one of many. Yes, exactly. You know, the local people look at these Sound of Music bus tours. It's quite a cottage industry there, and uh, they just shake their heads. They don't know anything about it, but it's just really a big deal for the Americans and the Japanese tourists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, All right. And we had a blast. And there are memories that will last with my wife and I uh, forever, I think. This is good. Lloyd, thanks for your report on the Sound of Music tour and picnicking on a doorstep in Salzburg. 
that I would uh, definitely say we won't do again. Well, you know, Salzburg is filled with beautiful little parks and a riverside park with benches. And if you're going to have a picnic in Salzburg, I'd recommend going down to the river. We've walked along the river and thoroughly enjoyed that. Uh, Even got buzzed by a swan walking across one of the bridges. Very territorial swans you'll encounter in in Europe. (laughs) It was. We've had people wish us bon appetit as we've eaten on uh, park benches in different places. Well, that's the beautiful part of traveling. It is. We we thoroughly enjoy it, and we're looking forward to our next trip in the uh, fall. All right. Thanks, Lloyd, and continued happy travels. Well, thank you, Rick. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. And Dylan's on the phone in Vancouver, Washington. Dylan, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. I was giving you a call because uh, I had an interesting story about how using real simple words can um, convey a lot when traveling in a foreign country. Um, A friend and I were driving on a freeway in southern France at night, and we stopped at a rest area for a picnic dinner. And it was like an American rest area where there was uh, no services, like a gas station, like commonly in France at rest areas. And a woman had her car hood up and approached us to look at her car, and she didn't speak any English, and we only spoke just a little French. My friend and I looked at her car and were able to figure out that her water pump had broken. That was our diagnosis. And uh, I didn't know the word, to t- how to tell her that exactly, but I knew the word for water. I was able to look up the word for pump. So I substituted the word kaput for broken because everybody knows what that word meant, and she uh, understood what we were telling her. Hmm. Well, you know, that's a good example of finding internationally understood words. I've always felt that uh, there's kind of a vocabulary of, of words that are likely to be understood regardless of what country you're in, and kaput is certainly one of those. Oh, yeah, definitely. And even my little daughter understands what that word means. Oh, yeah. She, I always, she's just a toddler. I always say if my car is broken in Portugal, I point to the vehicle and say, auto kaput. That would be understood. Yeah, it was, it was pretty... She was able to understand that, that uh, it wasn't working and what the part was. The rest area was kind of scary because it was at nighttime and she was a little nervous. And so hmm. we waited with her for about 30 minutes while we ate our dinner. And... Um, and kept an eye out for it, and the tow truck came. Apparently in France they have a nationwide tow truck network, uh-huh. and by the time we left, she gave us each a kiss on the cheek, which was kind of interesting because that wouldn't happen after waiting with someone for 30 minutes in America. I guess we became friends over that time. Isn't that beautiful? And they've got yeah. these things uh, worked into the system where you've got a tow truck network system. I know in a lot of cities in Europe, if your subway arrives late at night and you have a long walk, um, taxis are required to give the ride at a set, like, $2 rate or something like that if somebody knows to ask for it. Uh, people traveling alone, especially women uh, in, in the late hours, uh, can get that taxi connection from the metro to their home at a subsidized price. So Europe is densely populated with a lot of uh, challenges, and it's fun when we travel to see what happens when people get into a jam like that. They've got a towing network uh, that they can rely on, and you are a good Samaritan. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was, it was uh, interesting that she said, oh, the tow truck will be coming in 30 minutes. My job out hit the floor because that yeah. definitely wouldn't happen at a restaurant <laughs> in the United States. All right. Well, Dylan, thanks for your report. Thanks, Rick. Okay, happy travels. Thank you. I'm Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Elinda's on the phone in Philadelphia. Elinda, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you? I'm doing well. Got a thought on travel? Uh, yes. Um, we're all trying to travel, pack lightly, and I have a thought and a question. When I travel, I take a clothesline that twists so I don't need to use clothespins and it has suction cups that stick to the walls or if it doesn't stick to the walls it also has clips that I can hang on and twist around itself and hang on a towel rack so but my question for you uh, do you recommend liquid detergents or powder detergents given the travel restrictions on liquids to take? Well, travel restrictions on liquids only matter if you're going to carry your bag on. If you're carrying your bag on the plane, then you have to keep it in a three-ounce bottle, right? Or right. Less. So you can manage that. Uh, but, you know, first of all, your clothesline with the suction cup and the twisty thing, I think that's the best kind of clothesline. That's great. And as a, just an efficiency, you'll save time and money by just washing the clothes in the room when you have a chance. For, right. I've been, for 30 years, I've been spending four months a year in Europe washing my clothes as I go. I used to debate, should I bring liquid or flakes? And I would bring Ziploc baggies full of flakes. And it's, it, was a, you know, it was a substantial part of my luggage if you had to take a whole trip's worth of laundry detergent with you. And, you know, for about 15 years, I've been using 
the shampoo packets in the hotel rooms, and I've never bothered with uh, laundry detergent. And each hotel room has a packet of probably lousy shampoo that, for me, works great for washing my clothes. And it's a, a one packet is good for one wash, and I fill up the sink, and I dribble that shampoo in there, suds it up, and it works. I don't know if there's some chemical reason that shampoo doesn't work well for uh, your clothes, but nobody's ever told me I, I smell like... Uh, hair, you know. Uh, <laughs> I just don't smell as bad as I did before I washed. So I would say don't bring any detergent at all and wash your clothes when you do wash your clothes in the room with the shampoo. And there's always shampoo packets in the room of your hotel. I would never use the shampoo that I take from home because I like my shampoo that I take from home. I use that for my hair, but I use the hotel room shampoo for my clothes. Sounds like a great idea to me. All right. Good luck on that. Thank you. Okay. Bye now. Bye. And Dick's on the phone in Bloomington, Minnesota. Hi, Dick. Thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you? Doing well. What's your thought? Well, uh, I'd like to tell you my uh, story of a dumb thing that I did. This was back in 2002. My wife and I had gone to London and, and to Paris, a week in London, a week in Paris, and stayed where you said to stay and ate what you said to eat. But one thing of yours I did not follow, at least not 100%. We were coming out of Dorsey Museum and wanted to take the subway. So we went down, and there was hardly anybody on the platform. The train came, the door opened. As I stepped on my billfold, which was safely, quote-unquote, in my deep side pocket, uh, all of a sudden I felt a slap on my uh, trousers. And I reached down, and my billfold was gone. That billfold contained my credit cards and my driver's license. Not my money. I also had a money belt, but... Wow. Not smart. So what happened? So I turned to my right. There was a young boy standing there, maybe 11 or 12 years old, and I said, did you take that? And he said, no, and he pointed out the train. And so I hopped off the train. My wife struggled to keep the door open so the train wouldn't leave, and I looked around, nobody around. Just at that moment, <laughs> three men came running out of nowhere yelling, police, police. They were Paris plainclothes policemen that were staking out the subway for pickpockets. Wow. One of them ran in the car behind us and grabbed a kid in there and fought him out. And as he came out, I could see the policeman was holding my billfold high in his hand. <laughs> it was the happiest moment of my life, I think. Whoa, that was quite lucky to have the plainclothesmen right there on the spot, or maybe they just permeate the I, Paris I, I subway know, system. The story sounds like it's fake, but it's yeah. not. Yeah. There were three of them, as a matter of fact. So uh, the policeman, one of the things he said is, you're going to have to come to the police station and make a statement. And I was happy to do anything they asked me. So actually, it was two boys. The, the one that I had turned to originally, those two were in cahoots or whatever. And uh, we all rode in the back of the police paddy wagon through the streets of Paris to the police station, where I made my... Um, gave my information and made my statement and so forth. As my wife and I were walking out of the police station, the two young boys who had pickpocketed me saw us leave, and they waved with a big smile on their face. My goodness. And you shared the paddy wagon with your pickpockets? We, we played kneesies with them. You were I mean, sitting together with those guys as you drove to the station? Yes. The, the two boys were, there was just <laughs> like a wooden bench on each side. So it's kind of sport. Yeah. It feels like sport. That's what I always think. The thieves, they're not going to knife you. You know, it's just oh. they target tourists. I, sure. I, w I would if I was a thief in Europe. I mean, we're the people with all the money in our billfolds sure. and, and the good stuff, and we don't know where to turn, and we don't know to even how to say help in that language. And no. uh, And it's just important, as you learned, to not have stuff that is vulnerable. Button it in, zip it away, leave it in the hotel, but don't have it in a pocket. And, you know, I've heard you say that so many times, and I don't know why I didn't do it this time. You know, like you say, you, you don't put anything in your pocket that you don't want to lose. I say it a lot. You're right. And I don't want people to be paranoid. And I, I feel like sometimes I might make too big a deal of it. But if there's two thieves in town, you're going you're gonna to meet them. And they target Americans. And sadly, they target older Americans because they're easier to, to you know, push over and run away from. And you just, you got to realize that you just don't want to be vulnerable. Thing I've learned after traveling all around the world uh, since then was that uh, you know we're spoiled in the United States. I guess there are pickpockets here, but you don't run into them very often. Well, if you hung out on First Avenue as a clueless tourist, I bet you would. You know, yeah, that could be. So that's that the flip-flop thing you got to remember. And I think you also have to remember, Dick, that I've been pickpocketed once in Europe that I know of, 
end, it was when I was getting on a bus, when you uh -huh. were getting on a subway. There's commotion. When there's commotion, that's the chance when there's an opportunity for the pickpocket to do his thing. So if there's a rush to the door in the subway, that's yeah. when there's people getting their pockets picked. If there's any fake commotion, if there's people in a pushing match on the main square, uh, you know, people's pockets are getting picked. It's a fake commotion. If an old lady falls down an escalator, stand back and be careful. That's probably part of a thief team to create a commotion, a distraction, and pockets are being picked. That's just what you have to assume if you're a tourist on the streets of Europe. Yeah, in our case, there was no commotion. As I said, it was a nearly empty platform, but yeah. it was the moment, the instant I stepped from the platform onto the train. There you go. Dick, yeah. thanks for your report. I think that'll clue people into the uh, potential risk of being the victim of a petty pickpocket in the streets of Paris. Yes, and I was very, very fortunate. And you had a fun travel memory when it was all said and done. Oh, yes, I was very happy. <laughs> and best wishes. Thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Bye. Robert in Middleton, New York, writes, We are planning to travel to Spain and Portugal, and we've read about plainclothes police flashing badges, stopping tourists and asking to check for counterfeit currency. Uh, and, of course, they're not plainclothes police at all. They're con artists, and they take your money. What's the appropriate response, and how do you know if they're not the real thing? Well, I've heard of this scam, and it's quite widespread in Europe, and tourists are targeted by guys dressed up as plainclothes police with badges. If they flash a badge and say, We are policemen... We are checking for counterfeit currency. Can we see your money? You should assume that is a scam and these guys are con artists. You would say, take me to the station or I'll follow you to the police station and uh, we'll, we'll deal with it there. But never on the street should you let a policeman uh, with a badge and so on look at your money. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more in the radio section of our website. That's where you can find links to our guests, archives of past editions of the program. Or send us your original travel haiku, a short essay about where you live, and sign up to be notified of our next recording sessions for the show. It's all in the radio department at ricksteves.com. We get production and technical help from Sarah McCormick, Andrew Wakeling, Robin Cronin, and Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm the show's producer, Tim Tatton. Join us again next week for Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries, all designed to make Europe's rich history and great art come to life. For a free catalogue and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.